Hey guys, and welcome back to the Leia Heil Pen Show. It is always powered by Icon Plus. So really quickly for you. So this year, Icon will make a strong push into STOs. If you don't know, those are security token offerings. It will fully utilize the ICX token and have synergies with Icon's DeFi services and its interoperability protocol. Always great news from Icon there. Um, and this show, as you know, is sponsored by BlockFi. So a quick shout out to them. I use them to earn up to 8.6% um, interest on my USDC. So that is pretty insane. You can also get, um, I think it's up to $250 and depending on how much you deposit. So I'm going to leave, um, the link for that in the description and in the comment section. And before I bring on my really cool guest, uh, also it is sponsored by CoinFlip. So you can get 10% off transactions if you use the code, which I believe is scrolling somewhere at the bottom. So before I bring my guest on, if you are watching on YouTube, then please don't forget to hit the like button and hit subscribe so you never miss any of these fantastic guests. So joining me today is the founder of TechCrunch, Arrington XRP Capital, which kind of gives away who it is. He's a, an entrepreneur, a blogger, and a venture capitalist. It is Michael Arrington. How are you doing? Hello. What, uh, what's CoinFlip? So they're sponsoring this. Do I get a cut of this sponsorship? What's going on with that? Part of it, damn. I, I don't think so, to be honest. But uh, What is our agreement? <laughs> you, what is our agreement? No, we don't have one it yet. Is, we can um, talk after about it. It's fantastic. These companies are um, are sponsoring this kind of content, and uh, I mean, on the screen right now, which I don't think everyone sees, but I see CoinFlip. I also see BlockFi, and and Icon. So um, it's fantastic of them to be sponsoring this. So, although I don't oh, know, what thank CoinFlip you so much. Yes, yeah, so CoinFlip are no, yeah, it does sound kind of evil, doesn't it? <laughs> CoinFlip are um, an ATM service basically across the states. They have, I think it's around 1,422 Bitcoin ATMs. So with this discount code, you can get, um, I think it's around 10% 10 uh, 10 off your transactions. So it's pretty cool, isn't it? Uh, well, it depends. Are there transaction fees like 100%? Because now they're only down to 90%. So it really depends, you know, on what their initial Not fees exactly. are. Not exactly. Well, no, cool. no, 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 no. They're, they're, a, they're a really good company. They're a solid right. company. So let's do this. Yeah, we're done. I, I just want to chat to you now. Um, so for those who don't know who you are, tell us about yourself. Um, most of us know who you are, but just go for it. Uh, I you know I don't like this part. Uh, Why? I like well because like you, I grew up interviewing other people. Um, uh, sorry about that. that beeping. That'll stop. But. Um, so I don't like talking about myself as much and, uh, but I'll do it, but I don't like it. And, um, I don't know, but I, I've always been an entrepreneur. I, well, actually I started off as a lawyer in Silicon Valley and, um, and then I left that and joined one of my startups and then started my own companies after that. Most of them didn't do much that was interesting, but I did finally start a company called TechCrunch that, yeah. um, was both commercially and culturally successful. And that, that kind of, changed my career a little bit. And, uh, and that was, I uh, started that in 2005 and I sold it in 2010 and uh, TechCrunch is still going strong and it's good to see that. Um, but after that, I started a, a venture fund. I did traditional venture investing. I did that for, uh, I don't know, seven years or so. And I got a little bored with that, although I still do some of it. And then I got into crypto uh, and now I have a crypto hedge fund and it's called Arrington XRP Capital. Nice. So we're going to go through all of that. Uh, but now everybody knows what you do. But before we go into it, you know, it's been hectic on social media at the moment. Um, you know, we connected through social media. Social media is is really just like this godsend, which is 
transformed everything, you know, given this pandemic, we have it really as a bit of a godsend. But I just want to get your views on everything that's gone on, you know, in terms of social media censorship, um, you know, Trump being deplatformed while he was the sitting president. What are your thoughts on all of this? So we're just jumping right into politics. Basically. Yeah, let's do it. Oh, we're going to go back to TechCrunch. I just want because we've got to talk the most oh, recent. Yeah, we've no, got to go, well, like, look, this I, is hot. This is fire. We, you know, people want to hear the fire. Let's do it. The fire. I don't know if I have a lot of fire. I, I spoke out a lot about censorship over the last month or two. I'm not a Trump voter, but I think that he's been treated very badly on the way out. And um, and I think it's dangerous what we're doing to Trump voters in the U.S. Um, by calling them basically all terrorists and Nazis, I think is actually encouraging erratic and uh, behavior. So I think it's generally a bad thing and I've spoken up on that, but I also think it's becoming more and more dangerous to talk about this. Um, mm. And I don't mean it like, you know, police are gonna start knocking on my door any second because I say I'm against censorship, but I think it's just becoming not smart to do it. And uh, I'm a libertarian, I strongly believe in the right to free speech. I strongly believe in the right to bear arms. And um, those aren't popular positions to hold anymore. And I'm not sure it makes much sense to really fight those battles at this point. I think it makes more sense to focus on family and um, <clears throat> and making individual decisions that are the best for yourself. Uh, in other words, I think we're entering a period of darkness uh, in the West. And I think that period of darkness will go on for a while. So I absolutely um, agree with you. Um, I think it's kind of I think it's kind of sad that we're at a point whereby we sort of feel a bit um, apathetic towards it. In terms of sort of saying um, you think it's a dangerous move to to speak up about it, I hear you and I feel that just because um, a lot of a lot of let's let's call them conservative leaning accounts have lost thousands and thousands. Um, you know, friends of mine have lost over twenty thousand followers this week, um, and even my account, which isn't that political I don't, I don't think someone can tell me otherwise a little bit, a little bit. Um, a little bit, a little bit. okay in code um, you do it in code sometimes but yeah you clearly have I, I you know, politics so yeah that's funny in code that's jokes yeah. um i like that um but yeah you know i, I lost about 600 um i lost about 600 followers um and, and like it is and, and you know you work so hard to sort of like build well listen you work so hard to build so something hard. pardon say that again I'm making fun of you. Like, look, I mean, look, I yeah, think I know. there's a lot of bots on Twitter and those bots are up to all kinds of stuff. Uh, every once in a while, followers sort of vaporizing groups. I think that you have a strong core audience and it will get bigger over time as you create great content. So I wouldn't worry about 600 followers a whole lot. Um, no, I know. I mean, I, I think it's just the grand scheme. Like, people lost over twenty thousand followers, and you know, I, I just think it it's concerning. As you know, like you said, because you sort of feel it's dangerous. I mean, I think it was AOC who sort of said these people should be put on a list, right? These um, yeah. Trump supporters should be put on a list. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's terrible. It's dangerous. It's awful. A lot of those accounts are bots. That probably it doesn't matter if they're there or not. But a lot of real people are getting silenced and for speech that is not in any way illegal, at least in the United States. The UK has significantly different laws around this, and it's always unclear to me what's legal and illegal speech in the UK. Um, and I know you're, I, I think you've been very public about the fact that you'd like to leave the UK at some point. Um, I, uh, I'm worried about it, but like I said, there's only, you know, there's only so much we can do. But I will also say this, I'm not a Trump supporter, so it actually is a bit of a relief to have him gone. And and part of that is 
it's too bad. Part of it is because the media hated him. They the media created him, and the and the media destroyed him. And so I'm just yeah. as mad at the media as I am at Trump. But the whole thing was just a total shit show. And it, to some extent, I'm glad that part at least is over, and that we can move on from that. But I think that what we're doing now, instead of Trump, the Trump show, is actually significantly more dangerous. Yeah, I totally agree with you because I think, at least with Trump, we sort of understood, um, and I say we because when America sneezes, the whole world catches a cold, um, you know, so when, yeah. at least with Trump, we know what we're getting. I happen to think with somebody like Biden and Kamala Harris, it's kind of, um, I don't think they're as sort of uh, clean and, and I don't think their intentions are as pure and I think that's actually more dangerous. Um, I mean, what's pretty yeah. interesting is the whole idea of like um, a woman of color, um, particularly a woman being the first um, being the first vice president. And then the media tell us not to focus on these things. But Biden openly said that's the reason why he hired her. Right. Like he said yeah. that. Yeah, it's a mess. So what do we do? We just focus on family. Well, that's what I'm doing. Like, I, I, I think. Um... I've tried everything. I've tried back in the day. I tried financially supporting politicians. I actually, I don't think I've ever given money to a, a Republican, but I gave money to Cory Booker and I've given money to other politicians in the U S and this has, you can actually search all this stuff and see who's donated to who. Um, Cory Booker turned out to be a total disaster. I mean, he used to like, he and I, I don't know. Him. I don't know him. He, when was he's, this? Uh, he ran, Cory Booker ran for president. He's a Senator from New Jersey. Um, He's um, oh, he's dating. The main thing everybody knows him for now is he's dating that famous actress. Is it Rosario Dawson? Is that anyway? He um, but he turned into like uh, a totally like down the middle politician to like this crazy eyes guy who literally crazy eyes who um, who says all kinds of like nutty things. And I regret ever giving money to him. Like I was just trying to support politicians that I thought could be sane. And I'm not sure there are any anymore. And so I'm not making any more political donations. I think it's pointless to speak out on social media about this stuff because at best you're ignored, at worst you're deleted from the internet. And I think yeah. it's just better for everyone to sort of focus on what's happening in the world. And that's where I think is interesting because if you put aside the like civil rights issues, freedom of speech, et cetera, and you look at what's happening in the financial world, there's a lot you can do to protect yourself, I think, from what these governments are doing uh, to keep themselves in power, which is spend, 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 print, print, print. And that's where I think that those of us in crypto are in a really interesting place right now where we can protect our families and can protect our futures um, while we wait through this sort of this period of darkness that I believe, you know, really can't be fixed um, in the short term. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it is a period of darkness. And for that reason, I'm like so honored and I feel so privileged to be in crypto um, because I really find, I know people say Bitcoin fixes this and that's just some cliche rubbish, which kind of has like a tiny bit of truth to it. But it, it really is sort of like uh, an opportunity to opt out. And I think I wait, absolutely, wait, yeah, go on. Did you just call Bitcoin a cliche and rubbish? No, I called Bitcoin fixes this, the slogan cliche and not entirely oh, 100% accurate. <laughs> but it does fix things. It fixes some things. It doesn't fix everything. Is it going to fix people taking away your right to bear arms? No. Is it going to Is it going to fix? Um, oh, there's so many things that people know okay, Bitcoin can't fair fix. Enough, fair enough. Is it going to, yeah, my speech and all this stuff. Um, but what you can do is 
in my opinion, I tweeted this out the other day. I think I got some backlash for it, but just make enough money so that you can literally just leave, like leave, go to place, leave the West, go to places where, um, you know, there isn't this like looming communism for which I sort of feel is coming or oppression or whatever right. you want to call it. So where, where do you think, well, I have two questions on that. One, you're not a US citizen, I assume. Uh, and yeah. so you're not like, you know, U.S. citizens are particularly screwed because we can't, we can leave the U.S., but we can't leave the U.S. tax system. And we're the only yes, people in the world. Yes, um, fascinating. I didn't know so, that until recently, by the way, that oh, you always have yeah. to pay tax. No, that's why you don't see a lot of Americans working in Dubai and Singapore and other tax havens, because there's absolutely no point. I mean, they might go there. There are some. But if you live in the U.K., you can go to Dubai or Singapore or wherever and sometimes pay little or no tax on your income. In the U.S., you still pay your your tax back home, including your state tax if you if you've just moved from a state that has a lot of taxes. So that's you know we're just we're tax donkeys. So we can't get away from that. Now you can, of course, just leave the country if you think it's a good time to leave. Um, but I envy you the ability to sort of hop around the world with a with a great passport, but not have to worry about whatever taxes are hitting you back home, and only worry about the taxes of the of the place you actually live. That's really interesting. Um, to just on that point, and I cannot name names, but I know a guy who is American, um, and he's just off doing his thing, and he's not paying those uh, those U.S. tax. He's he, he's never he's never even lived in the states, but uh, I think it's the IRS is sort of like banging on his door, and he's having an issue. He's like, I lived. He's like, I was just born there for two minutes. I've lived in the U.K. or wherever else he's lived all his life. Who is this you're talking about? I can't say. <laughs> I can't say. So the IRS will go after him. I can't say. It's just a guy I know. He, he, you know, he's just running. You said the him. IRS is already banging on his door. So, well, not literally, but they're emailing him. They're getting his number. They're, you know, they're they're trying to get hold of him. Yeah. Okay. Well. Anyway, there is there is one way as a, as an American citizen to get around U.S. taxes, and that's to move to Puerto Rico. And that oh, okay. loophole is still open. And it, as far as I know, it is the only legal way to avoid U.S. taxes as a U.S. citizen. As you move to Puerto Rico, you spend at least, I don't know, six months a year there. And that's why a lot of crypto people there, like Rock Pierce and others, have moved there um, to avoid U.S. taxes. Um, but that's it. And then you have to live in Puerto Rico, which has, you know, it's good and bad. So. So how did you get into crypto? So I've got XRP in the uh, in the. Uh, in the in the what's it called the description of the of the video. So let's talk about crypto. I do want to get to TechCrunch in a bit, but how did you? Since we're on the crypto topic, how did yeah. you get into crypto? Well, I being in Silicon Valley, you're kind of crypto adjacent anyway. Um, you know, we're obviously we're hyper aware of Bitcoin even ten years ago, um, and ETH when it first came out and was raising money. Um, and we made, we being my partner and I and my venture fund, made some bets in crypto. Um, and, and those bets are starting to, you know, become liquid now. But those were not tokens. Those were those were just equity, you know, equity in things like Coinbase, although I didn't invest in Coinbase. I didn't have the opportunity to. Mm -hmm. um, I did buy Bitcoin in, I think, 2013 was the first time I bought it. And I think that was when coin, it was Coinbase. And, uh, you know, so I've held Bitcoin since then. Um, and I bought ETH very early. But again, I wasn't into crypto. I was still looking for the next Ubers and those kinds of companies that we invested in. Right. In 2017, though, a lot of people got into crypto in 2017. Um, during the ICO boom, I started to take a much harder look at crypto. And that's when I decided, after doing a couple of deals, that I'd like to do it full time. 
Okay. And so at that point, and that also is why XRP, at that point I started thinking about raising a fund and I just knew the XRP people very well because they're based in San Francisco and I'd known them for a while. Uh, and so I approached them about helping me raise that fund. And that's sort of how it all started. And um, Ripple didn't actually become an LP in the fund, but they introduced me to people that did become LPs in the fund. So I owe a lot to them for helping me get this fund off the ground. And that's sort of how it all started. But I why specifically XRP though, as opposed to any other sort of asset? I, I knew I knew people who had large amounts of capital in XRP and they became my initial LPs. Now, what's interesting is at first I wasn't going to call it Arrington XRP Capital. I was just going to call it something. You know, my last my venture fund was named Crunch Fund. Like I was going to call it something. Um, and actually, the Ripple people who aren't directly involved actually weren't like super excited about me calling it XRP because, you know, it was just unclear if I was going to be associated with them, you know, legally because of that name. But I kind of pushed because I wanted it to be called XRP Capital. And so they said, okay, well, it's fine. It's actually not a trademark. Go ahead and do it. And um, and so, it, you know, that that's how that happened. And since then, our LPs are not necessarily XRP holders, but that's a legacy issue that has stayed with us. And we remain extremely loyal to the XRP community and Ripple as a company. So XRP is such a hot topic um, all the time. Um, and I saw one of your interviews, I think you did with Pomp and you were sort of talking about like the tribalism and things like that. So tell me about the tribalism that you felt, you know, particularly just having XRP in the name. Yeah, it, it surprised me. So when I entered crypto, again, I was adjacent to crypto in tech. I understood a little bit about what crypto was happening, the tech side more so. What I wasn't ready for was the tribalism. And I, I mean, I kind of ran face first into a wall when I announced the fund um, on stage at Coindesk in I think November, late November, 2017. And suddenly there were people who loved me, who I didn't know, because I was doing an XRP denominated fund. And there are people who truly hated me and wanted me truly dead because I was doing an XRP denominated fund. And I'd never seen that before. Like I'd see in tech, I'd seen people like Apple versus Windows type stuff before, but never yeah, that kind of tribalism. And it's taken me a few years to figure it out because it's not very logical. Like it doesn't make a lot of sense to hate XRP because it's structured differently than Bitcoin or ETH. Mm -hmm. Until you really get into the philosophies involved in, in Bitcoin and ETH and, and everything else. And so everybody in crypto hates each other, but everyone in crypto also agrees they hate XRP. And so that, yes. that has been like the one sort of common theme uh, that brings everyone together is we all hate XRP. I think that's ridiculous. Uh, and I've said why a million times, but it was surprising and it continues to some extent and it's annoying and it's sort of a friction. Um, and that it is what it is. So. Yeah, I think um, I, I tweeted out um, maybe back in like September last year, I, I wrote, you know, imagine hating somebody because they prefer a different coin to you. And um, Adam Back, who's well known to be, um, you know, potentially Satoshi, uh, you know, obviously somebody very much in the Bitcoin um, faction, um, he sort of said, imagine supporting a Ponzi scheme, um, but not just about X. That wasn't just directed at XRP, it was directed at ETH, it was directed at um, EOS, it was directed at... Um, I, uh, 
pretty much all, all, all of them. And I, I can remember the founders sort of came running in sort of saying, wow, I've lost a lot of respect for you for calling, you know, me a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's every day. That's Twitter, that's crypto Twitter. And I think it drives a lot of people away. They don't yes. want to get burned, right? So they don't want to touch the, the hot fire. And, and that's too bad uh, because it would be nice if we could have some philosophical differences, but still agree on some core set of principles, but we aren't there yet. Um, and I don't know if what we do ever you, will be. What do you think those philosophical differences are? The differences or what are the things that could bring us together? No, like those philosophical differences, do you, cause I sort of think it's, there's like a libertarian undertone, which sort of differentiates the two. I, what do you think? Differences between the technology. Yeah. Why do people hate different coins? Is that what you're asking? No, no, no. Between Bitcoin and XRP, I sort of feel like they're the antithesis of each other. Oh, I think Bitcoin and dollars are the antithesis of each other. I think that, um, I mean, you have Bitcoin going this way, dollars going this way. I think, you know, Bitcoin and XRP is more like this in terms of the angle. Okay, of fair enough. Um, but uh, look, I mean, XRP is a ledger based currency and it is just the way that consensus is reached is much different than Bitcoin. And mm. because of that difference, people feel that XRP is more centralized. And because of that, they feel that XRP is censorable, mutable, et cetera. Whether that's true or not becomes irrelevant because this becomes a religious war and facts become irrelevant. Uh, I love Bitcoin. I have said and believe that Bitcoin is the alpha and the omega. It is, you know, it is the sun and the moon and my, it is the most perfect money ever invented or, or even thought of. Um, I also think that ETH is a very important currency and, a, and I believe the world computer narrative. And I think that it is exceptionally interesting and important, plays a role mm -hmm. that Bitcoin cannot and should not play. And I think XRP does the same as do other coins. And so I have no fundamental uh, desire for XRP to die a fiery death uh, simply because it is in some instances less decentralized than Bitcoin for the same reason I don't want ETH to die um, because it is a totally different currency than Bitcoin and say has more inflation. So. Yeah, I understand. So essentially they all, you know, have value in different ways. Um, but in terms of what happened with the SEC, I want to get your thoughts on that because that for some came out of the blue for uh, Brad Garlinghouse, apparently it didn't quite come out of the blue. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Um, do you think it's a security? And also like, how would you define a security for those that don't know? This is XRP, obviously. <laughs> yeah, you just asked a lot. I, I Okay, so. <laughs> Let's start with defining a security. Let's start with defining a security if you can. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I hate this question and I'll tell you why. Like I like answering it, but I hate the question. So I actually was a securities lawyer before I became an entrepreneur. That was back a ways, but I wrote a book about initial public offerings. I can't, I knew, I know securities law and whether or not something is a security, even asking that question just plays into the hands of the SEC. They want everybody yeah. using their definitions to decide what is and isn't. Uh, a security. Look, uh, we buy cryptocurrencies with the hope of making money when they're denominated in dollars. We do that because we don't believe in dollars anymore. Is that a security? Uh, maybe. I don't know. It depends because it's not It's not just about is it a security and then the conversation's over. It's is it a security and then if it is, which is entirely a legal definition, then the SEC can really put the hurt on you. 
And so I think it's all securities in the sense of like, we're all buying these things because we're trying to get into assets that will protect us from what the dollar is doing. But no, are we looking at the Howey test, a hundred year old sort of test that is absolutely useless in a modern world? It's ridiculous. And so we also have to look at the fact that there's like seven other federal organizations that are that are regulating crypto. And so is it a currency? Is it a commodity? Is it, how does the IRS tax it? How does the DOJ and the FBI look at all of this? And it's just a mess. And so what is more interesting than is this a security? How do we define a security is will the US come up with a coherent regulatory scheme that allows Americans and people who want to do business in America to experiment with new business models and new type of assets to compete on a worldwide basis? And the answer so far is absolutely not. The US is only concerned with how to tax it and how to shut it down. And so we need to fix those two problems from a much higher perspective than is this a security or not a security? Does that answer the question? Yes, kind of. Um, but from, kind of. you know. I think it was a wonderful answer well, to the question. But I still, well, well not exactly because you didn't answer like, do you think it's oh. a security? I'm yes, or, because it matters. It matters because although you said, although you said, you know, we should be focusing on other issues like the fact that they're sort of stifling innovation through all this tax and this and that. Um, but you know, as as you know, the founder of Arrington XRP Capital, there are a lot of XRP bag holders watching now. A lot of people sort of feel that you know this could give XRP clarity. So um, that matters as well. The delisting of XRP on many different platforms matters. Just really about, you know, for people holding XRP for yeah, investors. You, you don't want to talk philosophy. You want to talk like down and dirty, like what's actually going to happen here. And I don't have yeah, answers. Of course. I have no idea. Like, yeah, okay. they, I mean, the exchanges are delisting XRP despite the massive volume of XRP trades that were happening and a lot of fees they're creating because they're scared. Cause they're scared of the US government. And so you saw a mass delisting, which is, you know, that's, it's not that surprising. Um, when it comes to like what, what's actually gonna happen, which I think is what you're yeah, really Yeah, the future no is what I'd like to know. Look, I'm, okay. I'm hoping that we get some regulatory clarity from this, but what I believe is the SEC wants Ripple dead to put a feather in their cap. Um, now, that's pure speculation based on nothing other than speculation. Also, the SEC is, an entity that changes over time and is changing right now in terms of SEC chairs. And so what the SEC wants over time is largely going to be dependent on what the executive branch wants over time. And the executive branch just changed. So I have no idea. I have no visibility into what's going to happen to XRP at all. I believe the SEC probably wants us to go to trial and when it goes to trial, we'll see what happens. Um, but I don't know. And do I think it's a security from the point of view of the SEC? No, but okay. from the point of view of me, it, this doesn't matter. Like what's a security, what isn't a security is totally irrelevant. And it really just comes down to like whether you only allow rich people to trade an asset or you allow everybody to trade an asset. And so when you look at like things like Uber, I was able to invest in one of the first rounds of Uber and Airbnb and Pinterest because I had wealth and had a venture fund. Everyday people who are just as smart or smarter than me also wanted to invest in those companies or would have if they could have like looked at the business plans like I did but the government told them that they're not worthy, that they're too poor, and so they can't make good financial decisions on their own, and so they're not allowed to invest in that. And so they don't get to make 10,000x returns on things like Uber and Pinterest and 
Airbnb and other companies. DoorDash is actually a funny one because I said no to it, but all my friends became multimillionaires on DoorDash. So now it's the same damn thing. The SEC comes in and they say, we don't want, we don't think poor people, their definition of poor, are smart enough to make decisions that rich people are. And so we're going to stop them from doing that. That's evil. And so who cares what the definition of a security is at the end of the day? And we can debate that all day, although I'd probably just tune out at some point because I don't care. What I do care about is that we should stop fraud and we should allow people to make any decisions that they want to make financially speaking. And that's it. And that's the end of the conversation from my point of view, because I'm only looking at it philosophically. Okay, so philosophically speaking, um, you know, if this does hurt XRP, do you think this is therefore a threat to the rest of the crypto space? That the question you just asked, God, you're you're good at this. The question you just asked is um, is can anything take crypto down at this point? Right. That's really the question you asked. So XRP is decided there's a security. It's decided by court that there were there were securities sold without an exemption or registration under the Securities Act, and everybody that works or ever worked for Ripple is now in prison for life or put to death. Why not do that? What happens then? I, I think it's bad for crypto, but I think that crypto lives lives on. And um, but I don't know what that means. For example, let's say that tomorrow the United States government said that Bitcoin is a national security threat across the board. Every regulatory agency said we're not allowing Bitcoin. It's illegal now. Congress passes a law. If you hold Bitcoin, you're going to be put to death. Done. Would that kill Bitcoin? No, but it would suck and it would be de facto dead anyway, because you know people would have to decide if they wanna hold this asset and be put to death. So I think the US government has, a, has the ability to kill crypto, but I don't know, I think as more and more time goes on and more and more government representatives own crypto, that becomes a less, a smaller and smaller likelihood. But no, I don't think, I don't think XRP, whether XRP lives or dies, has much effect on crypto in general. But what's right and wrong, it matters a lot. Yeah, I think I think it's kind of that last bit, which which kind of gets me. I think what's right and wrong absolutely does matter. And whether you can sort of take down something which is decentralized, um, I don't think it's possible. But in terms of um, heavy regulation, taxing every single move that you make, I think that's sort of what will make things harder. Like in the UK, for example, they're very anti-crypto here. And We've had a lot of issues with banks. And for me, it's so hard just to use things, let's say, like um, like crypto.com. It's really hard to use um, being UK based. What's, what's crypto.com? Is that another so, sponsor? Crypt- I don't know who that is. No, they're what not a sponsor. No, 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 no. I'm completely, they don't sponsor the show. I'm very transparent with everything. Um, no, I use them. They're, they're a debit card, they're an exchange. And essentially, um, okay. I can send money. Well, I can't now. I used to be able to send my pounds into um, into crypto.com, whereas yeah. now I can't. They've completely destroyed that. Um, because your bank that won't allow ba- it? Gateway, so I can't get my words out. Uh, no, it's just more you, um, no, not the bank. It's just a wider regulatory issue um, in the in the UK. Um, so okay. I have to use something like Revolut and then convert to euros and then send the euros in. But converting, let's just say you want to convert, like you want to put like, let's say, um, 10 grand or whatever it is, converting yeah. that from euros to pounds is going to be a lot in terms of like the exchange fees and whatever it is. So that's the kind of regulation that I think yeah. is more scary. Um, well, okay. On the other hand, look, I think that sucks and, it, and, and it's terrible. On the other hand, these gateways and these 
this friction that banks and governments are creating is is probably stopping Bitcoin and crypto from becoming an overheated bubble. Some people say it's a bubble now. We don't believe it is in any way. So it, yeah, it sucks. But in the long run, these gateways and this friction might actually help the market sort of be a little bit more steady. Um, otherwise, you might have seen Bitcoin go to $100,000, you know, in the last couple of weeks. And, and instead, we'll see that maybe over the next couple of years. But yeah, I, it sucks for you. But also, I don't feel that much pity for you because you can get on an airplane and you can go to Dubai and you can live there in a in a in a in a country or a city state that is actually like pretty pleasant for large parts of the year and pay no taxes. I can't do that. And so I feel like you have the better deal. Like you can you can go to Singapore, you can go wherever the hell you want and you can pay taxes there. That's pretty good. And then you can set up a bank account wherever it is you just moved and those banks are probably much more open to crypto than they are yes. in the UK. 100%. So it's like the world's smallest violin is playing for you right now. Yeah, 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 I guess so. I want to leave the UK anyway, so I have to figure that one out. Um, but I want to talk about TechCrunch um, right. because um, that has completely, I would say, sort of revolutionized um, a lot of different things. Um, the way, um, you know, the way technology does, the way media covers technology and so on. So this was something that you did in 2005. So why did you yeah. start it? Just Yeah, why did you start it? Uh I mean, look, there's a, it's a mythology at this point. I started it because I had no job. I was surfing. I lived in LA. I spent my days surfing and playing video games and eating burritos. It was pretty good life, but I ran out of money. And my girlfriend at the time was not overly impressed with my lifestyle. And so I, I realized I'd been in and out of tech. I had lived in, in Europe for a while. I just needed a reset. And the internet was changing at the time. And it was becoming what with hindsight is obvious, but at the time was very interesting the read, write web and mm -hmm. technologies that allowed you um, to use the internet more like a desktop application. And so you started to see things like what has now become like Gmail and like Google docs was magic back then. And so you see this sort of explosion of companies and I just wanted to get to know those companies and I started researching them, and then I thought, why don't I just post the research? And so, if you see the first, you know, few weeks of TechCrunch, it was just research being posted without much like color commentary or personality. But it, there was this like uh, this hunger for this kind of news because there was no positive coverage of startups at the time, like very little. And so, yeah. people just like like sucked it in, and it started growing like crazy. And then I just sort of let the business become what it needed to be. Interestingly, we're at a similar position now. So there's tons of startup coverage now in tech that wasn't didn't exist 15 years ago, but it's all gone very negative. And I think that there's actually like a real cry for fine, negative, we hate tech, tech is the cause of all problems. That stuff's fine. The New York Times can do it all they want. And even TechCrunch to some extent has become woke crunch and is less interesting. But I think that there's a cry of for like, hey, people just like, yeah, yeah, we hate everything, but also we'd like to have a site that just covers tech in like a positive way as well. Yeah. And that is verboten right now. But you've seen like Andreessen Horowitz just, just recently a couple of days ago decided they're gonna start doing content that is maybe a little bit more like raw, raw tech, which people are hungry for again. And so there's another just market opportunity. And I, I think that people want that, you know, they, you need to be critical of tech when it does evil. But when there's like two women who start a new company and they're four days old, you don't need to be super critical of them. You just need to cheerlead them on and hope that they do well 
and that they can raise money and create a product that people want. And like, we don't need to tell them they're evil and part of the patriarchy. And uh, we just don't at that point. And so I hope that we see more of like what TechCrunch originally was in the future, people clearly want. So it won't be so, me though, because it's a very hard job. Like the hardest job that I've ever had is being a journalist or a pundit and having to be creating content every single day and being on that treadmill of content creation every single day was extremely difficult from a health perspective and something I will never do again. Yeah, are you, are you talking about just like that news cycle? Yeah, waking up like in a panic, like what news did I miss, right? And and then and and not going to sleep because news is still breaking and you know, and then you're not sleeping well, which means you start gaining weight, which means you start eating improperly, which means you start gaining more weight, which means you're not sleeping well. And so I went from a relatively fit 35 year old to a extremely overweight 40 year old by the time I sold TechCrunch. And I don't want to do that anymore. So also it doesn't pay nearly as well as being an investor. So no, journalism is uh, the most stress, one of the most stressful jobs that pay like the least um, well, yeah. amount and of I money. See you, right? I see how hard you work behind the scenes. You're like a duck, right? Like you're floating on the that. surface. You're this beautiful duck. Everything's cool. But like below the seat, below you're like, because I've seen it. I've seen you with trying to schedule me and like getting me on. Like, it's just, it's a lot of work. It was probably more time getting all this scheduled with me than we're actually spending now. And then I assume you do yeah. some kind of post editing and all that kind of stuff too. I don't, I don't know, but cause I've never done this kind of stuff, but it, it is incredible the amount of work you do. And I understand why you're doing it. You're building your audience, you're building your personality and the myth around you. But at some point you probably will want to do less of that, or at least have teams of people doing it for you. And that'll yeah. be good. I hear you. Firstly, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, so, but the thing is, I've actually, I come from a traditional background of journalism and that was breaking news. And honestly, I could never do that again. Like that was torture. I used to be in Paris and I was the only correspondent in Paris. And that, that meant- sounds terrible. That, oh, it was So you lived in Paris and, yes. and it was just awful. Oh, yeah, firstly, Paris is awful. Firstly, Paris is just terrible. Sorry if there are any Parisians watching. Um, absolutely terrible, terrible place. Yeah, yeah I had, the, had the, the yellow vest protesters all over my road, up and down, smashing cars. I mean, that, so there's that. But then because I was the only correspondent, um, I was working Monday to Sunday. I was working... Um, from I think I, I went to Barcelona to cover the Catalan the Catalonian riots. I was working Terrible. from six in the morning until midnight. Oh my god! Um, yeah, I was. I, so like, you I had were my in Paris. You were in Paris, and you had to go to Barcelona for business, and you had to get up at six in the morning and work until midnight that night. Happened twice. Oh okay, my god! That, how, did how, how did you survive? How did you did you survive? I was in wait, my. Uh, how, wait, you're you were like what twenty or twenty three or something like that's what you do when you're that age. Like, that, do you know how many people like would kill to live in Paris and be like, I have to go to Barcelona to cover something? It's you look not back that with great. More fondness on those times than you admit. No, I, like, no, not exactly. I'll explain why because okay. I'll, I'll explain why. Um, I felt very like trapped and ball and chain and stuck basically. Um, so I couldn't do anything. So like I had no, um, I'm trying to say like, I, for example, it was okay. So my family wanted to come visit me. I could say no, I had to say no. Everything I wanted to do, I had to say no. Um, because if there was like a terrorist attack, for example, then I had to go. Um, I was out at like nine o'clock one night. I had like three glasses of wine down and I get um, a, a message that there's um, 
and there's a hostage situation in Amsterdam and we have to go. So I, I kind of like had no, I just didn't like the idea that I couldn't plan things and I had no control of my life, basically. That was the problem. I had no control of Fair my enough. life. Still, that was probably a great way to spend, other than not being able to see your family and not being able to drink, you know, five glasses of wine before you had to go off to Amsterdam. Like it would probably was like a like good it. experience for you, for you to have, right? I mean, yeah. Like, yeah, so like, I'm glad I went through the TechCrunch experience. I just don't want to repeat it. That's and, what I'm uh, saying. Yeah. It's good to do it. it. Like you just don't have, I just feel like it, it completely takes away any, um, any um, self-determination, honestly, um, and control sure. over your life. Cause you can't, you're, you're yeah. stuck. You're literally a slave to the news. Yeah. And I don't want to be a slave to anything. I don't want to be a slave to my government. I don't want to be a slave to fiat currency. I don't want to be a slave to my job. Yeah. I don't want to be a slave to the I'm news. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that's kind of, that's kind of the way I see that. Um, but I had a bunch more questions. Um, my question was actually, um, so in, in terms of being an entrepreneur, building something so successful, what would you say some of the, the key ingredients are? I think the most important thing for an entrepreneur to understand is that the entrepreneurs that ask other people for advice rarely are successful. Like I just did it. I didn't know what I was doing. And suddenly I was headfirst into journalism and journalists were yelling at me all the time, like crypto, but not as bad because there wasn't money associated with it. But like, I never asked anybody for their advice. I never asked anybody what they think I should do. I just did it. And so I think the best entrepreneurs just do stuff and they figure it out. I never read a business book about, you know, how to do business. I never, I just, I just did it. And um, so I don't actually have a lot of advice for people other than if you have an itch, scratch it. Like if there's something you think needs to get built, go for it. And that's easier to do in your 20s when you don't have a family, you don't have a mortgage in the US, you may have college debt, but you don't have a lot of things stopping you from doing crazy things. Um, it's much harder when you're in your 30s and 40s and you have a family. It's just much harder to say yes to something like that. So do it when you're young because it costs much less for you personally to do it. And that's it. That's my only advice. Um, but what do you think about? Um, so you said you said you didn't ask or reach out for help. You sort of just did it. But I think reaching out for help and asking people is like the most important thing to do because I feel like that's the issue. We're people talking about different things. No, no. When you need okay, help with on. a task, networking, having people like a support group, that's fine. Okay. What I would, what I meant by that, and I didn't say it very well, is asking for advice on how to become successful in business is, in my opinion, nearly pointless, and actually suggests you will not be successful in business because you're asking other people how to do it. And the whole point of being an entrepreneur is there's no one way to do it. And there's no set recipe for being successful. Sometimes you just got to go and you got to fail and you have to learn and then you have to fail some more and you have to learn. And then suddenly it, it will work. I failed in like three or four startups before I did TechCrunch, which wasn't even a business idea. It was a blog. It was just an idea of like networking. And that ended up being where I made my first chunk of money and so I didn't I just did it and I actually talked to friends about it before I did it including my then business partner and they're like this is stupid like nobody don't create a blog like let's go create another business so again I'm just not the guy to ask that kind of advice for because my only advice is just try stuff and fail and good luck um, I think the people who are full of business advice are just like to hear themselves talk sometimes that's funny um I think you gave incredible advice though you just said keep trying. I think that's 
actually the most yeah. important thing. Um, yeah. Because I think there are so many um, people who are number one, too afraid to put themselves out there because they'll get terrible comments. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the comment section on this interview, it's, it's quite something. Um, so oh. yeah. Yeah, yeah, terrible? yeah. I'm not, I'm not even aware to look at the comments it, section. It, the comments section, I've, I've, I've closed it because it's just a lot, right? So, you know, that would sort of make some some people sort of say, well, I don't want to do an interview again because, you know, you get people hounding right. at you, sort of telling you all, all these sorts of things. Um, what, what, what comment section? Are you talking about on Twitter or is there an Oh, can you not see? If you look to the right, um, yeah. I don't know what you can see because I'm obviously hosting this. Um, but there, oh, there's, wow. there's a comment section. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. Oh, uh, that's fine. Yeah, it's yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, like it, it is what it is, but like, you know, to something like that sort of would, would make people sort of say, Oh, I'm not gonna do that again, or I can see you reading them now. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm looking oh, okay, this fine. way, comments are that way. I I, I'll oh, okay, turn it on. I don't care. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, um but no, I think you said the most important thing. I think you have to keep going. There are so many people who are so um they sort of feel like if somebody says no or if you fail, then that's sort of you done. Whereas, I, I mean, I put out a tweet today and I said, like, the most successful people have failed more times than those who aren't as successful as them. Yeah, I mean, I, the very first company I started, so I left my law firm and I joined a company. And mm -hmm. so I, I didn't start that. I just joined a company and I was doing biz dev and sales for them. So put that company aside. It was a cool company. I left that company very immaturely because they wouldn't, I was like 27 or something. They wouldn't, they wouldn't promote me to SVP, which was like for more 40 year olds. So I'm like, screw you guys. And I left, yeah, I started I like my own that. company and it was a payments company in 2000. And that company, we raised $18 million in venture capital. And, mm -hmm. but then in 2000, the, the market fell apart. And so we couldn't raise more money. We'd spent most of it back then. It cost a lot of money like using Oracle and stuff to get your apps up and running today. It's all basically free with Amazon. Um, anyway, we sold that company like 13 months after we founded it for $33 million. And that was on $18 million in venture capital raise. So you'd think I would have made some money, but back then venture capital, very standard, had a two X liquidation preference, which meant venture capitalists got twice the money out before the founders or anyone else got any money out. Two mm -hmm. times 18 is 36 million. So they didn't reach their liquidation preference. And the only thing I as a founder could do was block the sale. So they ended up giving me like $150,000 to sell the company just to get my vote because otherwise the company would have gone out of business. So the company was successful, but it failed from my perspective and I learned something. And then I started another company and that company just dead in the water failed and then et cetera. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that's good. And I do think failure is a necessary part of being successful. Um, very, very few people are like Bill Gates, where they just start their one company in college okay. and it ends up being massively successful. Mark Zuckerberg's another example. Very few people are like that, and I luck plays a part. Um, but if you keep trying, <coughs> excuse me, if you keep trying, luck will eventually hit, and and you will eventually win, unless you're just terrible at being an entrepreneur. I mean, then you may never be successful. Do you think anyone can do it, or are some people uh, just not cut out for it? Yeah, well, some people are definitely not cut out for it. It is very stressful, but also um, anybody can do it in the US, I think. In other countries, you absolutely can't do it. The social stigma of being an entrepreneur in Europe is less than it used to be, but it's pretty significant. UK less so. But um, social stigma about being an entrepreneur, maybe that's maybe that's an age difference. I don't know. I've never come across that. Tell the me. I, no, no, the idea of failure is a oh. bigger deal in Europe than it is in yes. the US. In the US, it's yes, like, yes, hey, yes. I fucked up. 
in Europe, yes, it's yes. like, oh, you you started a company and you failed. Um, also, there's French, like I have French friends here that are French, here being in the US that are French, right? They've moved here. They become very successful entrepreneurs. Sometimes these people cannot stop talking about their six car garage house that they've bought. But when they oh. go to France, they they will not talk about it and they 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 pre, they present themselves as very humble and i find that infinitely interesting as to how they they act one way in the us and one way in europe but yeah i think anybody with those caveats i think yeah anybody can be more successful um by being more entrepreneurial even if that just means being entrepreneurial within your existing job I think um, you make a really cool sort of observation about Europeans um, because Americans is something that I've noticed because I'm incredibly European in my in my sort of um, in my like mentality and behavior and so on. But you guys are just more extra and more flamboyant and louder and more excited and more when it comes to like business you know like everybody's because there's like this american dream right you don't have like the british dream the english dream it's like the american dream you know to to build something and to create and i feel like yeah. you have that there's more support there and I, i've noticed that people um people definitely you're, you're right people definitely rally and support um entrepreneurs a lot more than we do in the uk because in the uk you know We've, we're the Brits. We've got that stiff upper lip. You know, we don't want to rock the boat too much. And to be that entrepreneur, you have to do something right. different, like you did with TechCrunch. So here, people don't want to rock the boat too much. You know, yeah. it's just a British way. I don't. I mean, I don't know much about the UK. I've lived there twice. We did TechCrunch okay. events there. I love the country. I don't know much about the entrepreneurial mindset there, but some of the best entrepreneurs entrepreneurs in the world have come out of the UK. I think that Europe is a tougher play. And then I think you've got areas of the world that are so poor and so lacking yeah. in infrastructure and education that they, no matter, it doesn't matter what the, what the, you know, how well entrepreneurs are accepted. They just can't, they just can't break out of that cycle of poverty. And that's terrible. Um, so. All right. So we're coming up to the end of the show. So I just want to know, do you have any, um, okay. To, we'll make a positive and a negative. Number one, what are your sort of, Things that you're most proud of, your achievements you're most proud of, and number two, do you have any regrets um, in, in any of your career so far? Uh, I mean, I wish I, yeah, I mean, the stupid stuff, like I wish I had gone all in on Bitcoin in 2010 and no, just focused on mining it, right? It's hard. Um, one of the things that's a little different about my career is I, and I, I don't understand this. So I've seen people in, in Silicon Valley where I kind of came out of it's hard that first that first win is very hard right so you get to the first win and and then what do you do and i and what i don't get is it takes a certain level of like aggression to get to that first win mm -hmm. and and risk taking and all that i wrote an article on TechCrunch called are are you a pirate that was my most read article and it was just basically like entrepreneurs are crazy but you get to that first level of win and then i see people basically they do that the rest of their life so they found a company, they take it public or they sell it, and then they just work there. Or they become a VC and they start making, you know, $5 million a year, and then they just keep doing that for the rest of their life. I get bored doing that. And that's why, like, I started TechCrunch because I was bored doing other stuff. Then I became a VC because I didn't want to do TechCrunch anymore. But after seven years of being a venture capitalist, that was boring. I mean, that was making more money than I had before, but it was terribly boring because all you do is you, like, try to get into hot deals. Mm -hmm. Crypto is a whole new learning experience for me. Like, I, yeah. I the... And it keeps me young, like just learning about crypto. And so I don't understand why more people don't want to like constantly try new things, particularly if they've reached a level of success that allows them to do that. 
And, and I, I don't get it. Like, I don't get these guys that become venture capitalists and then they just do that for 40 years. Like, I was like, why? What? You don't get like a bigger private jet at some point. It's just got to be boring. But I think they become calcified and set in their ways. And I think breaking through that and trying new things the whole of your life is, is, is a much more interesting way to live. It's a much more interesting way to live, but it's also a much more stressful way to live. I'm with you. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally agreeing with you. But I think what I've sort of come to realize is that some people that like we're all just different and some people just like that comfort zone. Like they've made enough yeah. money, like they can just chill now. Cause you know, like you said, getting that first success or however you put it, um, takes risk. It takes aggression. It takes stress. It takes blood, yeah. sweat and tears. Yeah. Why, why do that once you've made millions? Like just, just chill. Yeah. I, well, I, 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 you know, I, I don't know why, but I don't like doing that. I like, I don't yeah. know but I want to keep learning new things. So maybe the next thing won't be money focused. Maybe it'll be like, I have a passion for, you know, animal welfare. And I, I nice. could, I could always see myself getting into that business and trying to just, you know, help animals, save animals. And um, that probably be me spending money, not making money. Um, but whatever it is, it'll be something new and I'll probably learn some new things. And I think everybody should be curious about that. If you, if you have it in you, if you don't, then, you know, find happiness your own way because there's probably lots of ways to be happy in this life. So just lastly then, um, tech has moved a huge way since 2005 when we started TechCrunch. You know, we're talking yeah. about uh, cri cryptocurrencies. I mean, that's just insane. So um, firstly, did you expect to, it to sort of really just explode the way it did? And then secondly, where do you expect, you know, how do you expect it to look in 10 years? I feel like you're going to hate that question, but Let's tech say. or crypto? What, I didn't quite understand the question. Tech, just tech in general, technology, like, you know, social media, crypto, all of it. It's just exploded in every possible way. So did you expect that? Um, oh, yeah, I expected more. And where do you see so, it? Look, if you, if really? you look at tech from a, from a fundamental standpoint, you've got, you've got, you got microchip like sp processing speeds and you have data bandwidth. And so we're doing a good job at getting data like bandwidth speeds up around the world. Um, but it still could be so much better. Um, and chip processing speeds have largely plateaued in any real way. And until there's a major breakthrough, we're not going to see like the next level of stuff that is truly magic. I mean, if you had showed an iPhone to somebody a hundred years ago, they would be, their, their brain would explode because it looks like magic to them. What yeah. is, what's the thing that they could be shown to us today that would make our brains explode. And you can imagine what those things are like fully immersive, um, virtual reality, you know, I'll, I'll, 3D printing. That, teleportation. You know, teleportation well, would make teleportation my brain is the destruction of the soul. So I'm not a big fan of teleportation from a Star Trek perspective, but yes, these kinds of things. Where that are we? And like, we need, like, is that, like, are we going to slow down? Or it's like the kind of innovation we're seeing in 10 year period now is what we're going to see over a hundred year period in the future. And that just comes down to whether or not we see scientific breakthroughs that can keep up with our expectations. And that's way out of my area of expertise, but I've been funding some companies that are doing pure science. And, and I hope that, I hope that we continue to see gains there um, that can help us in other areas. Nice. So any last words before we uh, before we sign off and say thank you to our no, viewers? Just, We've got a lot of views. I, I'm a big fan of yours. I don't know exactly when I started following you, but uh, ever since then, which was sometime early last year, I think, you know, I just enjoy you know, listening to you on, on your podcast and reading you on Twitter. 
so I'm, I'm just honored that you finally uh, agreed to bring me on the show. And, uh, and if there's anything I can ever do to help you, um, you know, just let me know. Thanks so much. Oh, I really appreciate that. I really appreciate that. Um, that, that, that means a lot coming from someone who's, uh, done so much, you know, so I really appreciate that. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, it's been great. Um, thank you to my sponsors and thank you everyone for listening. Um, if you haven't, please subscribe to my YouTube channel and hit the like button so we can continue to get such brilliant guests. Guys, thanks so much. Bye.